we continue our series this morning. God's people loving God, loving one another, and reaching the world. And as you know, the first three weeks we have talked about and looked at what does it mean to be God's people who love God. First and foremost, who lift high the name of Jesus, who live as those who are called to love him wholeheartedly. Now we come to the second portion of that statement. The second portion of that vision that we have here at Grace is that as God's people, we are those who love one another. And, and this is a, honestly, this is a, a, a segment of the series that as I look forward to it, I, I'm, I'm thinking, wow. I mean, honestly, I stand here looking at people who love me deeply and who I love deeply and who I see loving one another deeply. This, this church is perhaps the most loving body of believers I've ever been around. And it's a joy as a pastor to see you loving one another, to see you caring for one another. And, and so it, it's, it's with excitement, I think, we come to this. And we look at how do we love one another? Because the reality is while we are a very loving congregation, I don't think any of us are fooling ourselves to say that we love perfectly, Right? We, we have our faults, we have our shortcomings, and so that's what I want to look at over the next three weeks is what does it mean to love one another and how do we do that faithfully? I want to ask you to consider a situation for a moment. Just kind of maybe put, put your historical lens on and, and try to put yourself back in time a little bit, a, a time in which you've spent three years of your life following a man whom you believe is the promised Messiah, a man named Jesus, a man who came and, and met you and called you to follow him. And in that moment, your life radically changed. In that moment, you began following him. And, and as one of his disciples, you've seen him rebuke a storm. You, you've seen him walk on water. You've seen him heal the lame. You've seen him silence the Sadducees and baffle the Pharisees. You've seen him speak life to the dead, and they come walking out of their grave. You've seen him speak mercy to those caught in sin. You've seen him destroy man-made social barriers. You've seen him love the unlovely. You've sat and you've listened to his teachings. You've seen him feed thousands with just a few bits and parcels of food. And every day, it seems that you sit and at some point, your mouth just kind of drops open as you realize time and time again that the prophecies of the Old Testament are being fulfilled right before your eyes. And, and you just, at times, are dumbfounded. So now... You sit in a room with him and the rest of the disciples. It's the night of the Passover meal. And you've gathered around and you're hearing his teaching. And he tells you that he's about to die. And, and it, just, it just rattles you. You, you, can't, you can't really wrap your mind around. How, how could he look at you and say, I'm about to die? He, he's, he's the Messiah. He showed his power over death. How, how could he die? Just a few days earlier, he had ridden into town on a donkey, and all the people came out with palm branches 
exalting, worshiping, Hosanna in the highest. And, and now everything seems to have changed. Now the crowds have reversed. How did that happen? How did it come so quickly? Why is he now saying that he's going to die? And, and, and there just seems to be this, this tension in the air. You, you've experienced that before. There, this weighty, the weightiness of the air, perhaps. There's just something that is maybe this supernatural tension even. You, you, you sense it, you feel it, and you hear him talking about this. And so he gathers you together to observe the Passover meal. And then he does something entirely unexpected. Entirely unexpected. And we pick that up in John 13. I'm going to be flipping there. You see, as you gather, Jesus, even though you're having a hard time comprehending and understanding what he's saying, Jesus knew that his hour had come. He knew that his work was about to be complete. He knew that the purpose for which he came was upon him, that the shadow of the cross loomed greater and greater on the horizon. And so as he gathers you for this Passover meal, he kneels down, he lays aside his garments. He takes a towel. He ties it around his waist. He pours water into a basin. And it says in verse 5 of John 13 that he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. And truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus then goes on to 
revealed that there would indeed be one who would betray him. He speaks of who we know it to be is Judas. And then down in verse 31, he says this to the disciples. This is when, when he had gone out, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. As we think about what it means to love one another, I don't don't want you to miss the significance of what's happened here. I don't want you to miss what's going on. I I want you to see the full context that that as Jesus comes in and he's about to die, his work is about to be complete, what's the first thing he does? What's the first thing he does? They gather upstairs he demonstrates a humble servant love by washing their feet. He comes to them and he demonstrates his love for them. And what's the first thing he tells them to do? Love one another. Love one another. So, so that sets the importance of what we talk about today. How important is it that we love one another? In the moment of Jesus' last charge... Loving one another was his first topic. I I think that gives a great deal of importance to the idea that we as the body of Christ, that we as a local body here as Grace Baptist, that we would love one another in a very, very special way. See, in verse 33, he says, Little children, yet for a little while I am with you. Where I am going, you cannot come. But here's the great truth that we know, is that Jesus did not leave us alone. He didn't lead, leave us by ourselves. Later in John 14, 15 to 31, he tells the disciples that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. That he will send the Comforter. That he will dwell with them. Right? But here he calls the disciples to love one another because while he's leaving, while he's departing, he is not leaving them alone. He's sending the Holy Spirit, he will tell, but he's also leaving them with one another. And he knows that they are to love one another, that they will need one another. And in fact, the love that he displayed, the love that God showed by sending Christ, is now to be the very love that they show to one another in the way they relate to one another, the way they care for one another. It should be demonstrated among the disciples toward each other. The love of God was to be be seen in the people of God. And so I want us to look briefly at just three statements that he makes here, three key statements from Christ. Here's the first one in verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, why would he call this a new commandment? Why why would he say it's a new commandment? Haven't we been told already to love one another? You you may remember Leviticus 19, 18. Love one another. Or love your neighbor, sorry. Love your neighbor. 
as yourself. It's the passage that Jesus quotes in Matthew 22. When, when he quotes, he says, you know, he's asked that question we covered a few weeks ago. And he's asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Right? Well, then in verse 39 of Matthew 22, what does he say? The second one is like it. That you love your neighbor as yourself. We, we understand these things. So why is he saying it's new? Why, why does he say it's a new commandment? There, there's a difference here, and there's a significant difference. In, in Leviticus, in, in Matthew, we're called to what? Love who? Love our neighbor. But Jesus says here, the new commandment is what? That you love one another. You see, Matthew, 19, or Matthew 22, 39, Leviticus 19, 18, even the, the parable, parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, all of these call us to love our neighbors. We are indeed called to love our neighbors. But Jesus here is saying, listen, I want you to go beyond this general love. I want you to love everyone. Indeed, do that. But I want you to love one another with the love that I have shown you. So the love that we have for one another should be special. This new commandment is a unique love that's found among the people of God. A, a, a pastor, A.W. Pink, he said this, he said it this way, he described, he said, the law required love for one's neighbor, which was a fleshly relationship. It's a physical relationship. It's one that we might see in anyone passing by, they're our neighbor, and we're to care for them and love for them. But he says, Christ enjoins love to our brethren, which is a spiritual relationship. That the love that you and I share, because we are the people of God, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, is a special bond. It is a spiritual bond. It's a bond that's wrought by the, by the work of Christ and his atonement, the work that he completed in his life, in his death, and his re- resurrection. That in those moments, in, in the atonement of Christ, a, a community is established, a new family is brought to be, the family of God. And, and you don't enter into that family by any other means than through saving faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. You don't tithe your way into that family. You don't vote your way into that family. You don't baptize your way into that family. You don't good deed your way into that family. You're not born into that family. You're not in that family because of the color of your skin or the money in your bank account. The only way you are a part of the family of God is through faith in Jesus Christ alone, that you would turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone. That's how you're a part of that family. That's how you come into this community where we love each other in a unique and an intense and a special and an intimate way. That's how you come into this community that is known by its love for one another. And in this community where we love one another in this way, where we're called to to love in a way that's the distinguishing mark of God's people, that love is not bound by any ethnic heritage. It is not bound by any social status. It is established, rooted, and fed by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is our common bond and what brings us together. So we need to understand this. We need to understand there's a distinction here between the brotherly love that Christ calls us to and the neighborly love that the rest of Scripture calls us to as well. It doesn't set aside one. It doesn't relegate. It doesn't get rid of neighborly love. It just says love your neighbor, but the love that you have for your brothers and sisters in Christ should go up a notch. It's it's what Paul writes about in Galatians 6.10 where he, he says to love everyone, but especially 
those in the household of faith, especially those in the household of faith. It's understanding that, that we know that every brother or sister in Christ is our neighbor, but not every neighbor is our brother or sister in Christ. Does that make sense? So when, it, when Scripture calls us to love our neighbor, we are called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ in that manner. But the love that we are called to have for the body of Christ is different. It's, it's, it goes up a notch from that of neighborly love. It's, it's what stirs our heart. Colossians 1, 3 to 4, when Paul's expressing his prayer, it's, it's the love that the Colossian church had for all the saints that brought him to thanksgiving. It was that when he looked and said, wow, the way they love the people of God causes my heart to overflow with thanksgiving. Maybe, maybe another way to understand it or may, another way to, to bring it home would be to think about you as compared to my nuclear family. Right? I, I love you. And, and, and I would do anything I can for you. But I love my family in a little different way than I love you. It's more intense. I love my wife, Stephanie, in a way that I don't love you. And I love my children in a way that I don't love you. It's more intense. It's more committed. And that's how we are to be with the body of Christ. We're to love one another in a very special way, in a deep way, in a committed way, in a covenant way, in a way that is bound by the blood of Christ. And we have not that bond anywhere else in any other relationship. So this new commandment that we would love one another. The second phrase that Jesus says in verse 34 is he says, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Jesus has provided the example. He raised the bar. He set the standard. Right? It's, it was the, the passage that we meditated on. 1 John 3, 16 to 17. Where, where, where John writes, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? In verse 18, little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, we, we know love. How do we know love? Because God displayed it. Romans says that, that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that what? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ laid down his life for us. It's the demonstration of love when the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He lays it all on the line. His love leads to action on behalf of others. So I would just present to you, what does it mean for us to love one another? It means to love like Christ loved. Just as I have loved, you also are to love one another. I mean, think with me just for a moment what this looks like. Jesus' love was sacrificial. It, it cost him greatly. His love was for those who were at enmity with him, who rejected him, and who loved everyone and everything else but him. His love knew our every fault and shortcoming and acted on our behalf anyway. He knew you warts and all. He knew your rebellious nature. 
and he loved you. Jesus' love did not falter or fail when it meant certain personal harm. His love meant his humiliation for the sake of our restoration. His love meant he was forsaken that we might be reconciled. His love knew no gender or ethnic boundary. His love showed no preference according to one's influence, power, or prestige. And in light of this love, Jesus says, just as I have loved you, so you shall love one another. So simple question. Do I love that way? Do do you love like that? Is that the love that characterizes one another? That we would sacrifice for one another? That we would look past things our world says, no, you can't associate with that person or you can't love that person? Are you willing to be humiliated for the sake of your brothers? Is there something that would cause your love to shrink back, to falter, to fail? Do you love like that? The third statement that Jesus makes is this, in verse 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. All people will know you're my disciples. The distinguishing mark for God's people is what? Our love for one another. This is, this is nothing new. In the third century, Tertullian wrote this. He said, see the heathens say how they love one another, how they are ready even to die for one another. Tertullian remarks, he says, listen, the heathen, the, the unbeliever, they look back and they may not agree with everything, but they, one thing they do see is like, wow, they, they really love each other. They, they would even die for each other. Later, 4th, 5th century, Chrysostom wrote this. He said, even now, there's nothing else that causes the heathen to stumble, except that there is no love. Their own doctrines they have long condemned, and in like manner they admire ours, but they are hindered by our mode of life. He, he said, listen, it was kind of the, the, the opposite, the flip side of Tertullian Several, a couple, maybe 200 years later, the observation is that the unbeliever is stumbling. They're stumbling because our love is lacking for each other. It's not our doctrines. They, they have their doctrines. They hate their doctrines. They even admire ours, he says. They admire what we believe, our doctrines. But our mode of life hinders them. The way we fail to love one another hinders them. Listen, in, in three weeks, we're going to go to that next statement, reaching the world. I, I would contend to you that we are, we have been, and we will be a mission-minded, a mission-focused, a missional church. Our longing and our desire is to see people around the world come to faith in Christ. We want to see that happening here. We want to see growth here. Not because we want to make Grace Baptist great. Not because we want to be bigger than every other church. But because we want to see the lost saved. We want to see people come to saving faith in Christ. We're not interested in stealing people from other churches. We're interested in stealing people from the gates of hell. But here's what I would tell you this morning. Is that reaching the world will not happen 
if we don't first love God and second love one another. It will not happen. We have got to love one another. We, we are not distinguished. We're not known by our theological stance, our denominational allegiances, our missional activity. That's not what the world steps back and goes, oh, wow, look at that. Wow, that's, that's where they stand in that area of theology. Or, oh, that's impressive. Look at what they're doing. No, Jesus said that the world will know you're his by your love for one another. That's what sets us apart. That's what distinguishes us. And listen, this has to inform, this has to influence our posture and our interaction with other churches. It has to, it must, that we love one another. When Jesus says you love one another, it is not just the people at Grace Baptist Church. It's the people of God. Do I love the people of God? Some of you have traveled internationally. You've traveled on a mission trip, and you've experienced that it, it is just a, it, it is a God thing. That's all I know to say. The moment where you walk up, and you're meeting all these people, and you're talking to people, and, and they're going, oh, and they're wanting to know more about you, or they're looking at the truck, or they're saying whatever, and then all of a sudden, you, in the conversation, you find out they're a believer, and the moment that you find out that person's a believer, you may not be able to speak a lick of Thai or Spanish or Portuguese, whatever language it is. But as soon as you both find out there's a glimmer in their eye and yours, and you embrace and you hug and you have something in common, you're smiling, and it's like you're communicating. You don't know how. Why? Because you're a part of the people of God. You don't step back and go, well, what do you think about this doctrine? And what have you done lately about this? No, you said, what? You worship Jesus? You're a follower of Jesus? You trusted him alone for salvation? Then embrace. We love one another. Listen, we may not agree on every theological or ecclesiological point of churches in this area. But I would say if we believe on what the gospel is, that there is one God who created all things, and he sent his son to live a perfect life, to die on the cross and rise again, raise again from the dead. And promise that all who repent and trust in him will be saved. If we believe the gospel message that salvation is in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, through faith alone. Then we have something in common. We have the most important thing in common with them. And we can disagree with philosophy of ministry. And we can disagree with minor things, but when we drive by those churches, I hope when you drive by a church on the way here, that instead of going, oh, I don't think they have as many cars in their parking lot as we do, I hope you say, praise the Lord, there's people in that building who are living for the name and the renown of Jesus Christ. Because the reality is there's people in that church building and people in this church building who are going to be standing shoulder to shoulder in glory with our hands lifted high, praising the name of Jesus Christ. And we are called to love them. They're called to love us. We are not in competition. We are in cooperation with other churches who love Christ and who exist for the glory of God. Are there false doctrines? Yes. Are there false churches? Yes. But the qualification for being a false church is not anything other than Grace Baptist. The gospel, the name of Christ, Scripture alone, that's the qualification. We must love the brothers and sisters of Christ.
This has to influence us. This has to lead out in our actions, in our words. The love that Christ calls us to has to be more than the dim shadow of love that we see in the world. So what does it look like? What does it look like? You can flip to 1 Corinthians 13 if you want. I want to just close our time in 1 Corinthians 13 this morning. We saw what Jesus did. The, the first thing he does, John 13, 1 through 11, is love and action. 1 Corinthians 13 is a definition of what love is. So what does it look like? What, how do we really put feet in our faith? What does it look like to love those in the body of Christ at, at Grace? What does it look like to love those in the body of Christ that may gather in a different local church in our area? What does that look like to us? 1 Corinthians 13 is the picture. 1 Corinthians 13 is red at weddings, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. It is a beautiful description of love, but it is written in the context of the people of God. 1 Corinthians 12 is what? It's talking about the body of Christ. How does the body of Christ function together? How do we work together? What are the, the, the different gifts and, and abilities come together for the purpose of God's glory and the good of the body? That's 1 Corinthians 12. And then right out of that, he goes into 1 Corinthians 13. He says, listen, this is how you function. This is how you love one another. This is what it looks like. And I just want to draw your attention to verses 4 through 7. Where Paul defines love. He says, love is patient. It's kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. It is the antithesis of the world's view of love. It is the antithesis of the sinful flesh. My sinful flesh does not lead me to be patient. <laughs> it leads me to be quite impatient. I got impatient this morning sitting at the red light. Oh, somebody was in there controlling it to undermine my desire to get here five minutes early this morning. They may have been. I don't know. I was not patient. Are, are we patient with one another? Why, why would it be important for God's word to say love is patient? Because what is our tendency? Our tendency is to not be patient. We see the mistakes. We see the sin. We see the shortcomings of each other, don't we? We're like, I mean, we are trained to see that. I don't know how, but we are. Like, for some reason, it, it, it may be hard for me to see that in myself. But, buddy, I can see every one of Daniel's shortcomings. Every one of them. I can tell you right now. Probably not, but you know what I mean. We can see them. We just conveniently hide our own. Sometimes we get impatient with people's growth. Why, why are they been a Christian for that long? Why, they shouldn't be doing that. Well, you're right. <laughs> I probably shouldn't be doing some stuff I'm doing. I'm still living in sin. I'm still battling sin. You are too. But love is patient. Love is kind. Think about what you do for those around you. Think about the things you say. Are you kind? In your words to them? Are you kind in how you treat them? It does not envy. Do you rejoice in the blessings of other people? Or are you jealous? Man, I 
He always gets that. Man, I wish I had a truck like that. I wish I could do that, run that fast, lift that much weight. It does not boast. Are you self-centered? Do you, do you have this desire to make yourself look great and others look small? Do you want people to come to your corner of the room to sit at your table so you can tell how great you are in your latest achievement? Love is not arrogant. It shows the humility of Christ. It is not rude. It considers others first. It considers their needs. It does not insist on its own way. (laughs) Do you insist that everything is the way you want it? Do I insist that things have to look like I want it? It rejoices in the truth, not in wrongdoing. It is not irritable or resentful. There's a good one. Love is not irritable. Would somebody know you as irritable? Man, you don't, don't cross her path. Don't, you don't want to say the wrong thing around him. Don't bring that topic up. It is not irritable. So here, here's the question to close. What does this mean for me? What's this mean for you? We think about loving one another. What does it mean for us? I, I would push you and, and challenge you this morning that loving one another has to begin with me. Right? You say that with me? Loving one another begins with who? Me. Right? Thank you for not everybody saying you. I appreciate that. This is a true concern this morning. All right. Loving one another begins with me. Right? I have to look first and go, how can I love others well? I've got to resist the temptation to look at Daniel and go, well, (laughs) he didn't love me very well the other day. Right? I've got to resist that temptation. No, I've got to take the log out of my eye before I worry about the speck in everybody else's eye. How do I love well? I I can't wait for everyone else to love me well before I start to love them well. That's not love. Love loves. And so it has to begin with us. So here's, here's your application. This is really, really profound. Really profound, okay? Number one, four steps or four things. Here's what I would say. First, I want you to prayerfully consider Jesus' words, example, and the description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Hey, maybe go home this afternoon and just read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Read John 13. And just mull that over. Meditate on it. Think about it. And after you do that, pick a couple of ways to show your love or a couple areas that you need to grow in. And you think, wow, that kind of stepped on my toes because I'm kind of irritable. I can be pretty rude. Not always that kind in what I say. Not very patient. Pick, pick something that you want to grow in. And then third, think of something you can do this week to show genuine love to somebody else in the body of Christ. Maybe that's somebody here. Maybe it's somebody in another church that you know is a believer. And here's the earth-shattering one. Number four, do it. 
actually do it. Apply it. Don't leave the sermon sitting in here. Don't leave and go, wow, that was nice. I want to know what you're going to do about it. I want to know how you're going to love other people. I want to know how you're going to care for them. I want to know how you're going to show patience and kindness to them. Go and love one another well this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love for us displayed in the cross, in the sending of Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the the display and the picture of love you showed on that night of serving your disciples. God, I thank you for this church family that does love well. At a, a place that I feel so loved and cared for. And I know people here do too. I hear testimonies of it all the time. But God, let us not grow comfortable or apathetic in that and think we've arrived, we love each other well. God, we can grow in that. And God, I pray that we would. I pray that we would look and see areas where, where, where we could grow in our love for our brothers and sisters. God, reveal that to us, show that to us, that we would love one another well. Let us not be those who sit back and go, well, they don't love me that way. Or those who sit back and wait for others to love us well. God, let us know that it starts with me. And let us obediently step forward and love those around us well, that the world might know that we are the people of God. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.